This is Songwriter, the podcast that turns stories into songs. My name is Ben Arthur. Today, we have a brand new song from B. Steadwell. But first, the stories that inspired the song. My name is Ashley C. Ford. I am an author and a writer and a podcaster. And I'm a person who just likes to make things that sound like fun to make. My book was incredibly intense to write. That's why it took so long. It took almost 10 years. A lot of people ask me if writing this book felt like therapy, if it was therapeutic to write it all out, if it was cathartic to write it all out. And my answer to that is always no, but it did give me a lot of reasons to seek therapy. As I was writing the book, as I was coming upon memories and moments that would rise out of my mind or out of my new understanding of an experience or even circumstance that I was just born into, those new realizations required a new kind of processing or a different kind of processing than I had ever been used to trying or even knew I could try in some cases. And that required me to, yeah, go to therapy, go to counseling. I mean, to be perfectly honest, in order to finish the book, I had to go away to a place I call trauma camp and get intensive therapy for a little while. And A lot of that was to simply convince me for once and for all that my story was mine and I owned it and I was allowed to share it and that my love for my family, my love for people in my life who have come in or out for many reasons uh, did not require my silence. I was a kid who loved fantasy. I loved fantasy. I loved magic. I loved ghosts and the supernatural. I loved the idea that there were all these things going on around us that we couldn't see or understand and that miraculous things could occur that we could never imagine in our simple states of mind because we didn't understand magic. And if we really understood magic, it would make sense to us how those things happen. But because we don't, there were just some things we would never understand, right? And I held on to that, not just in terms of, you know, like maybe one day Jonathan Taylor Thomas will ask me for my hand in marriage, but also things like maybe my dad is in prison for something that he didn't do. Maybe my mother is only this way because she doesn't have someone in her life who loves her romantically. And if she did, then she would finally be so happy that she wouldn't have to be mad anymore. You know, I just sort of grew up and I grew out of the fantasies that we tell ourselves about why people do the things they do and also the fantasies we have about what we can know about another person. 
and what we can believe when another person says it's true. We say things like, oh, that person did something that's just monstrous. And it's like, yeah, we like to think of it that way. We like to think that that kind of behavior or action only exists in the realm of monsters. But honey, that person has a mom and a dad just like you. They've got blood running through their veins just like you. They are covered in skin just like you. That is not a monster. That's a human being. It's a human being, and you have to be able to accept that, even if you don't like it. I think that when I was noticing this pattern of violence against animals and how it mirrored in some ways the violence I was seeing constantly enacted upon my peers as as children, it seemed like those two things might have something to do with each other. In my story, these were two tracks, two patterns that ran along the same paths. And I felt like that was something really stark that I wanted to point out because it's this, this idea that in order to protect innocence, we must beat it down. We don't think of children as being treated that way. We think of children as being highly protected and sheltered, but children are treated that way all the time. Children are sacrificed to the desires and fantasies and delusions of adults every day. I believe I started disassociating from a pretty young age. I believe it became more intentional around the time that I was sexually assaulted. And I believe it became sort of out of control when I found out why my dad was in prison. I didn't really have the real life dad anymore. Like, whoever that was had done something terrible, had committed a heinous, horrific crime. But I still had this dad in my fantasy world. The dad who one day was going to show up and literally on horseback and pick me up from school and take me somewhere else. And that world was so much more consistent and so much more peaceful than reality, where not only was my dad most likely never going to come home, never going to come pick me up from school, but also, he was a bad person. He was a bad man. My grandmother was not a great communicator. When she saw something she didn't like, when she heard something she didn't like, she would go on a whole tirade 
about it. And I mean, it could continue for a while, well past the time you'd be like, we saw that person half an hour ago and she'd still be talking about them. But when it came to anything having to do with feelings or emotions or care in a certain sense, she was not a communicator at all. She could communicate her anger, her mistrust, her distaste. She, there was always something to be upset about. But if she was trying to talk to you about something that needed to be warm, it didn't ever happen (laughs) um, the way you would assume it would happen. This was a way for her to communicate something to me visually, which is what she tried to do most of the time. This is Ashley Seaford reading an excerpt from her memoir, Somebody's Daughter. Chapter 7 My mother wanted to be with her boyfriend. He wanted to be with her too. But there was distance and youth, and there always seemed to be some other woman involved. It would not last between them. He'd come into her life quickly, and he left the same way. The culmination of the first phase of that relationship, the baby, my second brother, was born without ever breathing. My grandmother said he was born small and gray, with an exposed serpentine spine. When she repeated this story, she would push up her glasses, wrinkle her nose, and use her index finger to make a wavy line in the air to illustrate the curve of his body. She said my mother held him for hours, kissed the top of his head, rocked him against her chest. My mother hadn't wanted to have another baby, not without being married, but abortion wasn't an option and he kept growing inside her. My mother could not fathom what kind of good Christian woman would end the life of a child even if she was in no position to provide for him, and my mother very much wanted to be a good Christian woman. Still, she did not want to be pregnant, and when the baby was born, already dead, she blamed her desire to be free for his passing. She named him after his father. She did not mark his grave. My mother came home to us raw and all alone. My grandmother told me she sat in the bathtub for hours, bleeding into the water. She stared into the space between herself and the walls, her body purging its sin, staining the off-white fiberglass. Her silence worried my brother and me for reasons we couldn't grasp just yet. He and I would sit close enough to hear the water make small splashes when she adjusted herself, making sure she wasn't giving up on breathing or living, that she wasn't giving up on us. On the other side of the door, My mother sent noiseless prayers into her bathwater, repenting in spontaneous expulsions, oblivious to the world growing red around her. Grandma and my mother's sisters wanted her to be well. They took her back to see the man who had delivered baby Daryl and the hole in his back. They told him my mother's symptoms because she'd lost her voice somewhere down in her chest, somewhere they couldn't reach in and grab it. She'd stopped trying to find her voice days before. 
She was content in her silence, in her bleeding, and in her inevitable demise. The doctor told my grandmother it was psychosomatic. My grandmother called him a quack and a demon. He said, there's no reason for her to be bleeding anymore. She's using her mind to punish herself. She won't get better until she chooses to get better. Someone decided my brother would stay with my mother and I would leave with my grandmother. We moved to her father's, my great-grandfather's farmhouse in Columbia, Missouri. A few years later, when I couldn't quite remember the worst of this time, I'd ask why I was sent off with Grandma Billy before kindergarten. I would be told, because you said you wanted to go. I disappeared into a new life in Missouri, a life without either brother, living or dead, and a grandmother who put strawberries and whipped cream on my waffles without blood under her nails. There was no one for me to protect or worry over. I missed my mother, but less and less every day. To keep me company, I had a dog, a goat, and a great-grandfather who threw hammers at wild pigs in the backyard, then paid me $2 to collect the tools and bring them back in the house. It was a game I thought my brother might enjoy, but I tried not to think of my brother too much. When I did, I felt sick with missing him. I couldn't forget him if I tried. My grandmother and I had our own routine. I had school and daycare all week, and I got to see a movie and get one toy on Saturdays. We alternated picking the movies, and when it was my turn, I could pick whichever movie I wanted, all by myself. I was electrified by the power of my choice and made my decisions based almost exclusively on the posters outside the theater. That's how I ended up picking films like Lorenzo's Oil, Passionfish, and Groundhog Day. I was easy to please and never protested my grandmother's picks, even after Fire in the Sky made me cry myself to sleep for a week. My grandmother was loving, but being comforting wasn't her gift. Each night she taught me to read, alternating between the Holy Bible, Barbie comics, and supermarket celebrity tabloids. I thought Princess Diana and Mary Magdalene would have looked similar. I thought the same about Billy Ray Cyrus and Jesus. When the thought of alien abduction kept me up, the star magazine I kept under my pillow reminded me to stop holding my breath. Living with my grandmother and her father in the fields of Missouri, I learned to think only of myself for hours at a time. Spending half a day alone, free of the company of people who would distract me from my being, I learned to think about who I was, who I was becoming, and what I wanted. I spent my free time exploring my great-grandfather's land, roaming farther than I was allowed. Too young and dumb to be scared of them, I made a game of sneaking up on and catching garden snakes by the tail. I caught them fast enough to shock them and then dropped them before they caught my skin between their fangs. I was only bitten once. It was fast and painful, but I did not scream. My eyes got wide and my arms flailed around until it let go. After the garden snake released me, I closed my eyes and leaned against a tree. I steadied my breath and soothed myself by speaking directly into the two puncture wounds in my first finger.
it don't hurt Ashley. I cradled the stinging hand with its opposite. If it hurt, you'd die. You won't die. On our Christmas visit to Indiana, my mother accused my grandmother of turning me against her. She acts like she doesn't even know who I am. My mother's tongue was coated in venom, her familiar anger rising in the back of her throat. A few days before Christmas, my mother came into the living room and saw me playing with a doll. It was the same doll she'd bought and wrapped for me under the tree. It was a doll she knew I'd love, something she hoped would remind me of the games we used to play and the life we'd had together back when we lived in the studio apartment. Now she was renting a two-bedroom house with enough room for me to return, but I was still in Missouri. No one thought it would be a good idea for me to move back to Fort Wayne in the middle of a school year, but my mother missed me, and she wanted me home. She screamed at me for opening the present, a gift she had to have worked overtime to purchase. I did not only feel distant from my mother, I felt angry with her and unsure of what she wanted with me. She sent me away, called me back, and now she seemed mad that I was here. I started to walk away from her and found myself buried face first in her living room carpet. My mother kicked me. I didn't cry. After a few moments, my mother picked me up and held me against her. Being held was rare and precious, an offering in and of itself. I rejected it, making my body go limp. I hoped she thought I was dead or paralyzed. I wanted her to think she'd really hurt me. I wanted her to apologize like her old boyfriend did. My grandmother walked into the room, took a look at us, and asked what happened. My mother told her I'd opened my gift. My grandmother explained that she'd bought me the same doll in Missouri. My grandmother knelt beside me. Are you okay, baby? I looked toward the front door. I'm fine. It don't hurt. I'm not dead. My mother walked into her bedroom and shut the door. Grandma, tell her it's okay. I'm not dead. I'm alive. When my grandmother and I returned to the farmhouse, I jumped out of my grandfather's car and ran into the house. I ran into the sitting room where my tea set was always on the back table, then into the bathroom where my good toothbrush was still in the pink cup behind the sink. I touched all of the things that reminded me of my new life in Missouri where no one hit me. I could read as much as I wanted, and there were no rusty red stains left in rings around the bathtub. I spoke to my grandmother without looking at her. Don't ever make me leave again, okay? I don't want to leave again. She looked down at me, then into the backyard, into the places I played without permission. She grabbed my hand and walked me out toward the trees, grabbing a shovel and a burlap bag next to the grill on the way. We walked farther and farther back until we were in the part of our land where my great-grandfather let the grasses grow long. My grandmother stomped around a bit, then staked the shovel's blade into the dirt. She dug slowly and with purpose, like she was sneaking up on the earth spread out before us. The ground was soft, so it wasn't long before she told me to come closer. 
I leaned over the hole and saw a garden snake. No, two, three, four, a lot of garden snakes. They were in some sort of a knot, though not stuck together. They moved quickly and deliberately over and around one another. They were not fighting, and they did not seem to be trying to get away from us or anything else. What are they doing, Grandma? My grandmother stared into the hole. They're loving each other, baby. She reached into the bag, poured lighter fluid into the hole, then a lit match. The grass in and around the hole burned, and then so did the snakes. My first instinct was to reach in and throw them as far as I could, to safety, but I hesitated when I remembered their bite. I waited too long to do them any good. The snakes did not slither away or thrash around as they burned. They held each other tighter. Even as the scales melted from their bodies, their inclination was to squeeze closer to the other snakes wrapped around them. Their green lengths blackened and bubbled, causing the flesh that simmered underneath each individual metallic hood to ooze. They did not panic. They did not run. I started to cry. You will have to go back. We'll both go back home. Your mama misses you. My grandmother reached over and grabbed my hand, both of us still staring into the hole. These things catch fire without letting each other go. We don't give up on our people. We don't stop loving them. She looked into my face, her eyes watering at the bottoms. Not even when we're burning alive. And now for the song written in response. I am B. Steadwell. I'm a musician, songwriter, storyteller, witch, black, queer, human. That's me. I, I like the word storyteller because it's, it's big enough to, I think, hold all of the things. I, I, I wrote a musical, you know, um, a couple years ago because I was telling stories through song and they were sort of fragmented and the reason why I wrote a musical was because I wanted to tell the story in a different way. I feel that black folks and women and queer folks are magical and if we take the time to, you know, share our powers and, um, and you know, learn and hone them, that, that makes us witches. Technology is a big part of my work, mostly uh, out of necessity, because I, w I didn't go to school for music. I, w I wasn't really formally trained in any instrument or, or you know, music theory. And when I started creating music, I was alone, so, mostly. And I didn't necessarily have the language to or even the, maybe the confidence to work with musicians and to like team up with instrumentalists. So 
I learned how to record myself. The loop pedal, I, I bought a loop pedal sort of as a writing tool, but then I started creating live performances on the loop pedal. It really is about layering, you know, pieces of me, pieces of my voice, pieces of my experience, and like creating sort of the inner thoughts <laughs> of, of the feeling, you know, like the many shades of, of a feeling or of a story. It does feel really nice, that base level of your voice, like just in a forest of, of voices. A cello is gorgeous, piano like can really move you, but like a voice is, is the most literally human <laughs> instrument. And I think people connect to it in a, in a really emotional way. I do anyway. So, um, so even having the tools to do more, I think that's like the voice, the layered voice is really my favorite tool, my favorite instrument. It's hard. <laughs> it's hard because because it's painful and because it's. I relate to the pain. I relate to um, some of the experiences. Um, but it's beautiful, and I think just the the act of Ashley writing it and the act of you reading it. It feels like a healing. It feels like you know all of these things that a, a young person, a little girl, should never have to survive you know all of these things we get to be witnesses to it and it's hard <laughs> it's hard to do a lot of the things that in my life are different from from ashley's story but black girls are the most ignored the most disposable like in 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 this world in this society like for the most part, you know, you know, I suffered from from sexual abuse. I suffered from a lot a lot of things and like it just it's just easy to just it's easy for that shit to happen to us. It's easy for us to be ignored. It's easy for you know our voices to be um, to be muted and and I think the the worst part is is saying, yeah, I, I'm I didn't die. I survived. I survived. I'm okay. You know, the, the suppression of like feeling the feelings because there's nobody there to take care of you. There's nobody there to say like, I see you. I'm here for you. I'm protecting you. And that's the thing, the, the, the lack of protection, I think that is the, is, you know, across different kinds of experiences, like black girls, women of color, we, we don't, we're not protected. So I related, I related to that. It's, um, it's emotional, it's hard. I don't, I don't want to access that all the time. It didn't hurt, I didn't cry. You know, if, if it hurt, you would die and you didn't die. That's like, reading that and even saying that now is like, really heavy. Um, just being able to, to say like, this is, this is how, we talk to ourselves. This is how I talk to myself. Like, just to be able to survive, like these really horrific and, and frustrating things. Like, we we have to say, like, 
you're good. You're good. You're okay. And, um, and, and I really wanted to say like, you're not okay. <laughs> and it did hurt. And it's like really, really like all of these things, like the fact that you go to your, you know, your grandma's house and like you experience love, you know, familial love that, that every child should experience and should be, you know, it should be ordinary. But like this little sliver of time is like the moment where you get to experience that. And then there's your mom in the background. And then there's this like, yeah, just being able to witness that and say like, you know, it's, it, it's okay. <laughs> like, it's okay that it hurt. It's okay. In this moment, we can actually just say this happened and this is the fucked up stuff we had to do to get through. And also like, it's not okay. None of it's okay. We're not okay. <laughs> It's for, it's for, you know, little Ashley, it's for little B, it's for, um, and not so much for us, because I think we are healing. Like, we, we do have love around us, we do have community around us, but, like, anytime you read a story like this, it's like, there are, there are people going through this now. And I hate it. I hate that, you know? her, you know, Ashley's book, you know, it, it, it's going to create a change for somebody. It's going to create, you know, healing for, for a lot of people. So that's, I mean, that's all we can do. That's, that's, that's the best I think we can do. I wanted to create a melody that was haunting and beautiful and like a little bit, like a little bit old, you know, like a little bit ancient and a little bit modern. I don't know, like maybe, maybe that's lofty, but, but like that, yeah, that main metal melody line that sort of comes in and, and stays the whole song is, it feels like the feeling. It feels like the heartstring and the and the and the complexity and the um the weaving but definitely the snake imagery is like in there and i the way i wrote this one is i sat at the computer like with the lights off and you know um which i don't usually do sometimes i do but um when i when i found a melody line and i started i did start with that melody line um when I found it, I recorded it. So I started with that. I recorded it and, and looped it and, um, and wrote to it. I wrote words to it and, Part of what like accesses the feelings for me is when when you go into your head voice, when you go into the highs and the airy feelings, and it's like it feels like vulnerability to me. It feels like and 
when I sing there, I start to feel things. I start to feel um, love and pain. You know, it's a lot. It accesses things for me. And I did want to start. I started, you know, the song with the experience of love, the experience of grandparents, and and being there, and and dessert, and like, and the country, and um, and I, I I think I loved that chapter so much because because it was because she was surrounded by love, and I and I knew she deserved it, you know, like she deserved it the whole time, but moving into the song, moving into sort of a second verse and talking about the background of, of where, where's your mom, you know, why isn't she here? And then, and then it's like implies for me the, how precarious that the good, you know, stuff is because it's like, you're going to go back. You have to go back to her. When I sent you the song, I was like, okay, she's not, she's probably not gonna like have time to even listen to it. That's, no, I honestly, you know, she's, she's like a big deal and she's really, you know, I'm sure she's really busy. And I kind of sent it and I think you sent me an email back and I was like, I'm not opening this. Cause I was just like, she, it's gonna be something like she's, she thinks it's cool. You know, like, I don't know, it, like something really vague. <laughs> When I sent the song to Ashley, I asked if she would mind recording her reactions as she listened. To my surprise, she sent a video of herself listening to the song for the first time. Seeing her listen and cry and like really feel it definitely surprised me. And, um, and it was, I think I cried watching her cry. I was like, oh my God, just like weeping. Because I was like, I so so deeply like honored that she even took the time to listen to it, and then like the that she that she felt it, you know, was such a gift. Like it's such a big deal to me. Yeah, that video is like, ah, uh, it's so so beautiful. A few weeks later, we were all able to get on a Zoom together to say hello. Oh my gosh. Hello. Oh. Hi. It is so cool to see you. Thank you so much because <laughs> I know that this is the first time technically that we're seeing each other, but B, you you saw me. Yeah. You see me. Yeah. Oh my God, I'm dead. I'm dead. <laughs> This entire process couldn't have gone better just with the book coming out and the response to it. But I have to tell you that this is, this has been the sweetest part. This is, I don't, I will trade in New York Times bestseller for this song. This is B. Steadwell with her song, Don't Hurt. If it hurt, you'd die. 
Deadwell with her song, Don't Hurt. The next episode of Songwriter features an excerpt from Jonathan Franzen's novel, Crossroads, and a brand new song written in response by one of Jonathan's favorite bands, Wussy. In other news, the first in-person and live performance of Songwriter will take place on the 23rd of July in London. The show will feature a reading from best-selling author Charlie Gilmore and brand new songs written in response by me and Mat Shadiso. The show will take place in the clock tower of St. Pancras Station, and there is extremely limited seating. Please contact benarthurmail at gmail to make a reservation. Tickets will be on a donation basis. Songwriter is 100% independently produced by Hook and Crook. If you want to support the artists and the producer who make it, please consider a premium subscription from Apple or Spotify, or simply go to songwriterpodcast.com forward slash donate. Five-star ratings and kind words in reviews, on social media, or in person are always appreciated too. You can always get early access to the Songwriter Podcast at Paste. Just go to pastemagazine.com and search for Ben Arthur. And while you're there, check out the Paste Podcast or get it wherever you get yours. Finally, thanks as always to Rob Reinhardt and Acoustic Cafe. Acoustic Cafe.